Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning. It's so good to see you all. Happy belated Thanksgiving and welcome to Advent. Uh, If you happen to be newer to Redeemer or newer to kind of the liturgical church calendar, Advent is a season in the church calendar where we celebrate the arrival of Jesus while eagerly anticipating his promised second return. It happens to be my favorite season of the year, so I always love when Advent rolls around. I love seeing the decorations. I love some of the energy of the busyness and all of these things, but I also love the opportunity to sit back and to reflect on what it means, what it means to me for this little baby to have been born in this town called Bethlehem and how my life has been forever changed because of him and what he's done. This Advent, we have used the song O Holy Night, to inspire kind of the different movements each week that we walk through together as we kind of learn what it means to celebrate Jesus' arrival and anticipate his second coming. And so each week, we're going to be walking through verse 2 of the song, O Holy Night. And here's the layout so that you all, for, you, for those type A people that need to know where we're headed and where, where we're going, I happen to be one of those type A people. It's going to be up Uh, on the screen, I think. But here's the weeks as they roll out for us. Week one, we will talk about truly he taught us to love one another. Week two, his law is love and his gospel is peace. Week three, chain shall he break for the slave is our brother. Week four, and in his name all oppression shall cease. And week five, let all within us praise his holy name. That's where we're headed. I look forward to the journey with you all and learning from you and hearing what it means that this little baby was born to us. So let's get started. Truly, he taught us to love one another. That line reminds me of what Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 34 to 35. And when the French author was composing the poem that turned into O Holy Night, I have to think that this verse was kind of reverberating on, in the background, so to speak. And speaking of background, let's get a little bit of background on John 13. There's kind of a stage set for what Jesus leans into in these teachings. John 13 begins with Jesus' last Passover meal, but before they share the wine and the bread. So the dinner's been going on, the wine and the bread happens towards the end of the meal. And that's the part of the meal that we've commonly we come to know as the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper. And he's surrounded by his disciples. The devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And after the meal, Jesus takes off his garments and he wraps a towel around his waist. He fills up a basin full of water and he sits down and he washes his disciples' feet. And after Judas leaves, Jesus offers the last series of teachings he's ever going to tell his closest friends. 
And that spans for a couple chapters. But at the very beginning of those teachings, Jesus says these words, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In the upper room, with his final instructions to his disciples, he gives this command, not suggestion, not wouldn't it be nice if, but this command that we are to love one another. And he covers that explanation. He gives us this explanation of what that type of love looks like. In case if you're wondering what Jesus does it mean to love one another, he, he adds this qualifier, as I have loved you, love one another. That's the type of love that I'm expecting from you. It's the type of love that I have shown you. Love one another. In Jesus's eyes, love is the defining characteristic of discipleship. If you want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, he says, you have to love the type of way, the type of love that I have offered you. In many respects, being a disciple is a lot like being an apprentice. And today we've kind of lost this art of apprenticeship. We much more formally go off to college and we learn how to think new ideas and new thoughts. And part of the creativity of our mind, what we're able to produce with our mind, the type of critical thinking that can be developed is very much celebrated in this culture. And it's, it's a good thing. But apprenticeship was a little bit different than going off and learning how to critically think. It was about getting into the monotonous details of a craft. It was, in the case of like a carpenter, like Jesus was, it was the process of learning over and over and over again how to carve a wooden leg in all of the minute, grotesque, little details of what it means to do that sort of thing. So when Jesus uses this language of discipleship uh, in connection to his type of love, he's going, I want you to mirror my love. I want you to watch my love. I want you to get into the indescribable, tiny little details of what it's like as I went on loving you. That's the type of love that I want you to lean into. Don't get overly creative about this. Don't think in other different realms or expectations. Watch, study, learn, practice my love. That's the instruction going on here. An apprentice learns his or her trade by watching and replicating their master. And that's as disciples of Jesus, what we're called to, to watch and replicate our master. The most truly important thing that we can do as his disciples is love and love one another. I keep going on and on about this theme of love, but it's amazing that in three very short sentences, it's repeated three times, right? Isn't that amazing? Scripture rarely repeats itself. It just doesn't do that very often. But here in very short, compacted frame of reference, three times we are called to love. I truly believe that as a community, Redeemer loves well. I've been here for three years and I've watched 
what you all do and how you lean in the other focusedness of this church. And it's inspiring. I have seen meal trains come up quickly for those that are either wounded or sick. I mean, and filled out. I've called in sometimes to go, I would like to help participate in this. And to go, no, we've already haven't lined up for like three months. We're good. Thanks. Um, that's amazing. Uh, many of us serve at the hub. I see a lot of you at the hub. At Bixby Outreach Center with Mission of Hope in the DR, with Tulsa Lights, with The Merchant, with all of the scores of ministries that uh, you all support here at Redeemer and all the missionary work that's supported by your generosity. Redeemer loves well. You are generous in your giving, which helps us support missions here locally, nationally, and around the world. And not only do you show up with your finances, you show up with your support and your energy and your time. And I'm very, very grateful. So thank you all for the ways that you love. I say all of that to say, right, there's clearly a but coming. Not a but at Redeemer, but a but at the entire kind of evangelical movement, so to speak. I think Redeemer, in a lot of ways, you're special, you're unique, and I love the ways that you all lean in with your love. As an evangelical movement within the United States, I would say that there's a different optic going on regarding the world or regarding the rest of our society as they look in at evangelicals. I've been a pastor now for about 14 years. And in those 14 years, I've learned kind of a lot of different things. I've learned a lot of different things. And I'm going to share three of those main things, right? It's me. So there'll be three things. Um, I'll share three of my primary reflections over these 14 years. Um, but first, before I get there, there's this guy named David Kinneman, who's a research guru with this group called Barna Group. And Barna Group goes off and does huge surveys. Uh, they're really good at this type of work. And they don't pull small sample sizes for all of those that, you, that like analytics um, or statistics or things of that nature. Um, some of us are bored to death. As soon as we hear about these things, other of us get energized and excited. Um, they do research around the nation, and they do so at a very high rate. So by that, I mean their sample sizes are massive. You can trust the analytics that they're leaning into. And they came away with some disturbing studies as they were pulling what they labeled outsiders. And by outsiders, they don't even like the term, and they, they make note of this in the book. So we don't really like calling them outsiders, but they're people, broadly speaking, who are not within the church. They don't claim to be Christians, so in that way, they're outsiders. Uh, and as they surveyed a bunch of outsiders, they came up with some horrific findings of their impressions of the church. And here's, here's a quote from the book. One crucial insight kept popping up in our, in our exploration. In studying thousands of outsiders' impressions, it is clear that Christians are primarily perceived for what they stand against. We have become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. We have become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. And I bring that to our attention in this way this morning because as we sit into the season of Advent, which is meant to be this remembrance of this coming of our Savior and the anticipation 
of his return, it's also one of the craziest and busiest seasons of the year where we get caught up in a whole wave of expectation and busyness. And sometimes we just pray that this whole season would go away. I think that this is a crucial time as a church for us to sit back, for us to process our actions a little bit more, for us to intentionally slow down and to think about who it is that we serve. What is it that he does? What is he about? And are we about those types of things? Hinneman followed up his findings by including two reflections of outsiders. Embrace yourself. Uh, I'm going to read these for us, but they're really hard to hear. If you thought that comment was a little singing, these get way more into the weeds or into the dirt of what these reflections are really like. And they selected these two to share, and they share a lot more in the book. The book is called Unchristian, if you are interested in looking it up by David Kinneman. Uh, but he gets into the weeds of a couple of these reflections to support this point that he makes. And he says, basically, these are comprehensive. They're a reverberation of a lot of the feedback that they got. So one outsider, one person made this blunt observation. Christianity has become bloated with blind followers who would rather repeat slogans than actually feel true compassion and care. Christianity has become marketed and streamlined into a juggernaut of fear-mongering, thank you so much, um, a fear-mongering that has lost its own heart. Another person offered this reflection. Most people I meet assume that Christian means very conservative, entrenched in their thinking, anti-gay, anti-choice, angry, violent, illogical empire builders. They want to convert everyone and they generally cannot live peacefully with anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. Ouch. That's stinging. And I think somewhat what's stinging about it is that when we read that, we go, yes, that's a stereotype. Yes, it's a little overboard. Yes, it's not really what we're about. But we also recognize, right, that there, there is some sort of ringing truth to the broad movement, right? There is some semblance, right? There's sometimes, have you ever heard, pay attention to critiques and criticisms you're given? Because even if it's coming from a posture of hurt or pain, that there's at least like 10% truth there. There's some true things about some of those statements that really are a reflection of what the evangelical movement has kind of turned into. And in my 14 years of ministry, I've discovered three important truths. Here they are. Overall, evangelicals care more about being right than they care about acting right, which means they spend more time caring about what a person believes than they spend time caring about the person. And speaking about belief, they're often more indoctrinated than they are biblically literate. In other words, they tend to listen to other people talk about the Bible a lot, but they don't necessarily do that great of a job reading the Bible on their own and developing their own thoughts and opinions and beliefs and theologies based on Scripture. In my 14 years of ministry, I would say, broadly speaking, that is what I have learned about the evangelical community. Now, that's not me saying to any one of you individually, this is you. 
More so, it's meant to open up a door of conversation for us to think through what is it that we believe? How are we acting? What are we doing in this wake of Christ's coming, in this wake of this peace movement of the kingdom of God that Jesus' birth initiates? In what ways are we participating in it? Or in what ways, as we call ourselves Christians, are we inadvertently, paradoxically, even ironically warring against that movement? In this season, I think it's important that we take some time to reflect on what it is exactly we're doing and what we're up to. So how do we love one another like Jesus commanded us to? How do we lean into that type of love? Unfortunately, I don't think that there's a three-step easy process for that. I would love, it would be my best day, to give you three quick points and be like, hey, you need to do these three things and that's going to set you up for loving like Jesus. I would love to tell you I can do that for you this morning. I think it's far too you dependent. It's far too connected to who you are, how you think, the family you live in, the work environment that you're a part of, the community you surround yourself. It's not, if we made it that legalistic, do these three things, I'm not sure that we could really call it love at all, could we? It would be much more of an obligation. Nevertheless, in our verse for this morning, Jesus told us that if we want to love one another, our love must look like Jesus's love. Fundamentally, our love must look like Jesus's love. And I think there's at least two primary characteristics that I would want to use to define Jesus's love. Jesus's love was a humble love. He came in with Amazing amounts of humility. From our earliest introductions of Jesus, his humility is on display. The first people to be told about the birth of Jesus was not religious leaders. It was not diplomats. It was not kings. It was not priests, nor anyone else with political clout or power. But shepherds. One of the lowliest people groups in the ancient Near East were shepherds. Luke also tells us in Acts chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph were poor. He doesn't directly come out and say that, but we can infer that from knowing that they brought two doves to offer when they came to present Jesus. Because in Leviticus chapter 8, I believe that there's a prescription there saying, if you cannot afford to buy a lamb to, when you present your daughter or your son to the temple, you can bring a couple of pigeons or doves. And that's what they did. Because they didn't have the money, as Joseph being a carpenter, to bring up a lamb. They brought two doves. Later, as Jesus begins to call his disciples, Philip finds Nathanael and tells him that they have found the Messiah. And this happens in John. And he's told that he's Jesus of Nazareth. And then Philip offers a stinging comment. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? It's tremendous. Thinking of Jesus' hometown that has a reputation of, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus was a carpenter that preferred to spend his time with sinners and tax collectors. I mean, really think about that for a minute. Jesus, despite being the son of God, you know, who could have really came in as a big deal because he was the son of God, chose to enter the world through poverty chose to spend all of his time with societal rejects and sick people. Meanwhile, so many of his followers today 
are jockeying around to sit at the popular kids' lunch table. So many Christians today. Part of the plight of being human, part of this human condition, is that we all desperately want to be somebody. One of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, said, the greatest hindrance to faith is again and again just the pride and anxiety of our human hearts. Pride because we want to be more than we are. Anxiety because we're afraid people will find out that we're mere imposters. My other favorite theologian, N.T. Wright, says this about humility and pride. At the heart of Christian ethic is humility. At the heart of its parodies, pride. Different roads with different destinations, and the destinations color the character of those who travel by them. Here, Wright is offering us a pretty big challenge, challenging us to think about where we're trying to get to in life. If our destination is all about ourselves, if when we really sit back and think about it, where we're trying to get to is all about ourselves, then Wright would say, our character is then therefore marked by pride. But if our destination is all about others and our character is about humility, all in all, as Rick Warren said, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's not a belittling of yourself. It's not a thinking less than of yourself. In fact, it's thinking of ourselves less. It's learning to think about ourselves less. If we want to love like Jesus loved, then we must practice humility. Furthermore, Jesus was other-focused. So yes, he was humble in his approach. He was humble in the way that he engaged ministry and life in general, but he was also other-focused. He lived lived a life full of active submission to the will of his Father. As such, he spent all of his time either praying or serving God others. Consistently, we find Jesus surrounded by his disciples, teaching, pouring out for others. We find him healing sick people, giving them new life. And then when he's too tired, he goes off by himself and he prays to his father and he connects with his father. It's a whole other orientation of being. It's a whole other orientation of just being. If y'all thought I was meddling, moments ago. I'm about to meddle more. I'm sorry. I'm about to open up a can of worms. This is again one of those sorry but not so sorry moments. Of course, we know our society is by and large self-centered, right? We recognize that. We recognize that this is true. It's a me-oriented way of living this whole American life, the whole American dream. Unfortunately, The American church far too often mirrors society in this way. And here's how it works. Churches tend to measure successful ministry by attendance and budget. The larger the attendance and budget, the better the ministry. Now, in order to be bigger and better, larger, bigger, and better, They must develop worship services and programs catered to your 
desires so that you will keep coming back and so that you will want to invite other people to come back to. American Christianity is consumer-focused. In this way, it is also me-focused. It's me-focused. As society moves further and further from the church, attendance and budgets suffer. So in order to not slip completely into irrelevance, it will double, if not triple down, on making itself attractive to potential consumers. It will further and further act in ways to say, please won't you come here? Please won't you participate in this? Eugene Peterson commented on consumerism in the church like this. If people are not satisfied, we'll find a way to woo them back with better publicity and glossier advertising. We'll repackage church under fresh brand names. Since Americans are the world's champion consumers, let's offer the gospel on consumer terms, reinterpreting it as a way to satisfy their addiction to more and better and sexier. The huge irony is that the more the gospel is offered in consumer terms, the more the consumers are disappointed. The gospel is not a consumer product. It does not satisfy what we think of as our needs. The results of doing church this way is disastrous, really. Instead of teaching Christians what it means to live a life of humility, the humility offered by the church generally speaking, is more, than a, it is more like a parody than it is about humility because the destination is all about you, not about others. Paradoxically, instead of humility, the consumer system reinforces both pride and anxiety. Instead of teaching us to be other-focused, it teaches us that our faith is ultimately about us becoming the best versions of ourselves. The long of the short of it is that consumer models of church, which most American churches are, create not good Christians, but good consumers, resulting in not much more than the American dream with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top of it. I don't know about you, but I think it's about time for a detox. I think it's about time for us to reflect a little bit on what we do and why we do it. So this Advent, I want to invite you on a journey. As we celebrate Jesus' first coming and we anticipate his second, Let's take some time to critically evaluate our faith. If like me, you realize that your faith is more about you than it is about God or your neighbor, let's do something about that. Let's begin some new practices this Advent. Let's start praying more and not more about ourselves 
but about others. Let's start inviting that the Holy Spirit might help us understand and embrace God's will for our lives. That we might learn what it means to be other-minded. Let's learn how to give more of our time, our energy, and our resources to serve others. By the power of the Holy Spirit, our faith can be more than a parody. It can be more than pride in disguise. If we invite the Holy Spirit into those areas of our lives, if we invite ourselves into honest reflection, if we tend and stop and think, is my faith more about me or is it more about my neighbor? And invite Holy, the Holy Spirit to come in and do a radical change of our heart if we can start to learn to think about ourselves just a little bit less then we can learn, lean into what it means to love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for leaving a model of love for us. We lay at your feet who we are, our life, our thoughts, our faith. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to illuminate our heart for ways that we have inadvertently and unintentionally made our faith all about us instead of about you and instead of restoration with our neighbor. Lord, teach us and inspire us by a vision of love so we may learn how to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected with all that God is doing here at Redeemer, you can visit RedeemerTulsa.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram. Have a blessed week.